Luke 16. As many of you recall, we we studied the first several verses of Luke chapter 16. It begins with He was also saying to His disciples, and then He goes into dealing with a very pharisaical issue, the love of money. Luke 15, it was clearly a problem for the younger son, it was clearly a problem for the older son. Money was, their inheritance. That was kind of the, the issue that was messing them both up. The younger son who squandered the money. And the older son who saved it, but he sure, certainly wasn't enjoying it. Some money. We got really into this on Sunday. Not my favorite thing to talk about, but God's Word is clear on the matter. And we talked about the righteous youth use of unrighteous wealth. But skip down now to verse 14. Let's pick it up there. And if you want to hear that, it's, it's online and you can listen to that teaching. But verse 14 says, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things. That is his, his parable about the shrewd, uh, the unrighteous but shrewd steward. They were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Let me bring you up to speed. Why are the Pharisees scoffing when Jesus is talking about unrighteous wealth? Because to the Pharisees, money wasn't unrighteous. Money was a sign of righteousness. His theology is all wrong. He doesn't know what he's talking about because clearly the rich man is the righteous man. Clearly the one with the fine house and the well-appointed clothing and, and the servants, that's the righteous man because he's blessed. So therefore he's righteous and God blesses him. Rich people are blessed. Poor people, sinners. Which is why they were having such a hard time with Jesus inviting the sinners. Because you know they're poor, they're impoverished, they're outcasts. They're no good. We're the righteous can't you tell by our bling? We got the cash. We got the stuff. They were early prosperity theologians. They believed heavily. And some still do today that it's prosperity. And that's what it's about. Wrong Mary Lou. Jesus was not on that page. And so they had a problem with Jesus talking about unrighteous wealth. Clearly he was biblically misinformed. <laughs> Jesus calls out the real problem in verse 16. He says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. Now we got to break this down. Why were the Pharisees scoffing again? Money wasn't unrighteous, it was righteous. Jesus then says, there was the old law. And the old law was preached. Torah law was preached all the way up until John the Baptist, the old law, but now it's a new day. And John comes on the scene and begins preaching the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news. Jesus takes that message and lives it out, embodies it, preaches it himself. Now the gospel is the thing, Jesus is saying. Then it was law, but now it's a new day. The gospel is the thing. But what does he mean everyone is forcing his way into it? And there are different opinions about this. Everyone is forcing his way into it. Uh, The King James, I believe, says everyone uh, presses into it. But forcing his way is a better translation. It's what the word means. It's a forcefulness. It's even violent force. 
But some will use this verse to say we have got to lay hold of the kingdom. You gotta want it. You know, it was my basketball coach who said, Rick, you gotta want the ball. If you want the ball, you'll win the game. The team that wants the ball wins the game. You gotta force your way into the kingdom. You gotta take hold of the kingdom. Lay hold of it. And Paul kind of implies that. In fact, that's not bad Bible to think that way. Paul said, fight the good fight of the faith. 1 Timothy 6.12 Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Man, embrace it. Don't be a, uh, an Oscar Milktoast Christian. Yeah, I go to church once a week or so. You know, I don't like to talk much about Jesus, but I do the church thing. I'm on the kitchen crew, too. We do that. No, take hold of your salvation. Grab on. And that is biblical. Except right here. I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. The context here and the parallel verse in Matthew indicates something else. And that is very simply this. You can't force your way into the kingdom. You cannot force your way into the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, the parallel verse, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. They're trying to force their way into it. What is he saying? Everyone wants a piece of the pie. Now he's turning, remember, context, he's talking to the Pharisees. He is focused on them right now. Everyone wants a piece of the kingdom. And everyone's trying to go about it different ways. Rome thought they had it. Rome was the kingdom, right? Well, the Pharisees, they wanted it, but they wanted it their way. Jesus was not bringing the kingdom their way. Therefore, it wasn't the part of the kingdom that they wanted. There were zealots in the day. Zealots all over the place calling for revolution. Let's fight. Let's spill some blood. Yeah, that's what the zealots wanted. Let's spill the blood of Rome. And Jesus came along and spilled His own blood. Can't force your way into the kingdom. In fact, let me let Jesus express this better than I can. Luke 12.32 Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Luke 18, verse 17, Truly I say to you, Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. You're not going to force your way past the gates. You're not going to shove your way to the front of the line and say, I'm getting a piece of the kingdom. No one is going to enter the kingdom by squatter's rights. (laughs) It is given. It is given and it is received. The Hebrew writer, Hebrews chapter 12 says, hey, we are receiving the kingdom. I don't, I don't force my way in. And by the way, you can't force your ways into the kingdom either. Leave your agendas at the door, man. Leave your issues there. They are not welcome in the kingdom. There's one agenda and there's one issue and that is the glory of God and Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what the kingdom's about. Not what I might think that it should be about. And you see, while the message has now changed from the message of Torah law now to the message of the gospel of good news, the message has changed, but the Word of God has not. The Word of God is unchanging. Verse 17, Jesus goes on and says, 
It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke or of a letter of the law to fail. What is he talking about? You're not going to force your way into the kingdom, but the word of God stands. How are those two connected? The kingdom promised to David, promised throughout the Torah, will stand. It will not fail. Isaiah 9, 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Turn in your Bibles back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 8. And this is just one of so many different places in the Hebrew Scriptures that I could take you where we could see God promising the kingdom. Guaranteeing the kingdom that His word on, this, on the matter will not change. Torah is changing to grace. Law is now being fulfilled by Christ so that grace can come. The message of the, of the Jewish righteousness is now being replaced by the message, message of Christ's righteousness and that is the gospel. But, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, David, remember, wants to build God a house. And he's all excited about drawing up plans and building a temple. But God sends Natan, the prophet, to him. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make your you a a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth and I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again by the way they are living in their own place but they're still disturbed so we're not quite to fulfillment that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly that's a promise that's coming verse 11 even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you, David. You want to build me a house? No, 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 no. I'm going to build you a house. The word house in the Hebrew is bit or bet. And it means house or palace or posterity. I'm going to build on to your house, David. When your days are complete... And you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And yes, he is talking about Jesus there. Well, some will say, well, I thought it was Solomon. No, no, Solomon goes down that line, but it's, it's Jesus that we're talking about. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, well didn't Solomon build the temple? Yeah, he did. Solomon is just a type of the greater than Solomon to come, Jesus. And he shall build a house for my name, I will establish the throne. Verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Well, that sounds like the father in Jesus, right? When he commits iniquity, uh uh-oh, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son, sons of men. Did Jesus ever commit iniquity? He did once when He took our sins on Himself. And God applied to those sins on Jesus the strokes of man. He applied that rod of discipline, the strokes of the sons of men at the cross of Calvary. But my loving kindness shall not depart from Him. As I took away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, 
Your house, David, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Natan spoke to David. The promise of the kingdom. And note this. It's where we started tonight. He makes the promise to an individual. Not to the people. The people will be blessed. But he's talking to David. Why? Because God is a personal God. Because God wants to get in your life. Be involved with you. And he keeps showing us over and over and over. And the Pharisees didn't get it. Until God put on flesh. And they still didn't understand God in flesh. Because they didn't understand God in relationship. God comes to David and he he promises this kingdom. And you know what David says? Over in Psalm 16 verse 10. David writes, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. David says, My soul is not going to stay in the grave. He's talking about his own resurrection. Well, how is he going to be resurrected? Because God's Holy One is not going to see decay. And that's Jesus, who was only in the grave for three days, not long enough to decay. He was just borrowing the tomb. And David says, I'm not going to stay dead. How do you know that, David? Because God promised me a kingdom. Because God promised me a house. And it's eternal, and it is forever, and the kingdom will come as promised. Now quickly, skip back over to Luke chapter 16. Hope you kept your finger there, and you just flip, and you're there. So he says that not one stroke of a letter of the law is going to fail. Nothing's going to fail here. The Word of God is absolutely secure, though the message now is the message of the Gospel. The Word has not changed. Verse 18, then he says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. What? What? Jesus, you just went left at Albuquerque there, man. I lost your... We're talking about kingdom and all of a sudden now you're on divorce. Why? Jesus is giving a provocative example of the unchangeable nature of God's Word. He chooses this example because He's dealing with Pharisees who have danced around it for years. He says, the Word doesn't change. My Father's heart doesn't change. The Word is solid. It has always been this way. God has always hated divorce. He pulls divorce out as the example. Because God's never been... He's never been okay with divorce. And I know we have a lot of divorce in the church. And there is great grace. But before you get to the grace, you've got to understand, and too many churches just whitewash right over this, God is not okay with divorce. He hates divorce. Well, why does God hate divorce? Well, have you enjoyed it? If you've been through a divorce? Was that fun? Was that something that you would choose to do again? Oh, it was just great. I'm telling all my friends. No. It's painful. It's costly. It's heartache. It seems to never end. God hates that. God does not want that. He's not okay with it. And and not because it's unforgivable. There's only one unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? But divorce and remarriage is, just hear me on this, it is by definition, it's adultery. Are you calling me an adulterer, Rick? No, no. What I'm saying 
is the definition of adultery is to divorce someone to marry someone else. That's the definition of divorce uh, of adultery. That that's how it's played out. The only caveat that Jesus gives for divorce is sexual immorality. And let's be clear about that, because that's another thing that I think the church waters down quite a bit. We say marital unfaithfulness. I think that may be the NIV. The word in the Greek is pornea, where we get pornography, and it means sexual immorality. Matthew 19, verse 9. And by the way, if you're curious about this, you want to study it more, there's a whole teaching we did when we were in Matthew in chapter 19. You can go on the web and listen to that teaching, specifically breaking down and looking at divorce in a a much more in-depth manner than I have time for right now. But Matthew 19, verse 9, Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, pornea, and marries another woman, commits adultery. People will say, well, they just weren't getting along, so that's marital unfaithfulness, isn't it? No, it's not. It's not. And again, being clear by Scripture, by what Jesus said, the one caveat to a divorce, the one thing that frees a woman to divorce her husband and not be connected to that marriage at all anymore is her husband has committed sexual immorality. The one thing that frees a man in a marital situation when divorce happens is if the wife commits sexual immorality. And even with that, I will go so far as to say God would prefer forgiveness and restoration. Because it's better for the heart. Now if this makes you a little uncomfortable... Imagine being one of the Pharisees. Because this example that Jesus pulled... Pastor Rick didn't pull this out tonight. Jesus did. He's the one who stuck it right in here. And this was right up in the face. This hit home. The rabbis had developed all kinds of legal loopholes around divorce. If a wife burnt her husband's toast... I'm not kidding. He could divorce her. That was grounds for divorce. You burn my breakfast, you're out on your ear. (laughs) Serious. If a woman became, quote-unquote, undesirable to her husband, she no longer, you know, has the look. I want to know better. She's out. And the Pharisees accepted that as legitimate reason for divorce. And Jesus says, it's baloney. There's only one thing that's legitimate. And that is the violation of the marriage covenant through sexual immorality. And everything else is not legitimate based on God. And in Matthew 19, by the way, Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning. Don't you know in the very beginning it was this way? One man for one woman for one life. That's the pattern. Jesus said. What's the point here? We can't force our way into the kingdom any more than we can force God's word to adapt to our behaviors, our loopholes, our lifestyles. His word is unchanging. And I speak to you from one sinner to others. From one who, no, I haven't been divorced, but that doesn't make me an ounce better than anyone. In fact, Jesus pushed it so far. He said, any any man who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery already. That's adultery. Which means, I think at about the age of 13, I had already committed adultery several times on the beaches of Southern California. (laughs) This is not about 
bringing a pall of, of judgment. Remember, Jesus is talking to two different groups of people. When He's talking with the sinners, with those who are lost, with those who are messed up, with those who feel like they're just not worth anything, He says, come on home. When He's talking to the Pharisees who are uptight and they're playing with God's law and they're pretending church, He says, not good enough. God's Word doesn't change. And you don't take God's Word and twist it to fit into your lifestyle. That's not how it works. God's Word is unchanging. I conform to His Word. His Word does not conform to me. The Pharisees, the religious stuffed shirts needed to hear this. And I love the way Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness... He's conceited and understands nothing. Well said, Paul. The next parable is the rich man and Lazarus. It is a fascinating parable and we are going to save it for Sunday. So come back and we'll listen to that. Jump ahead quickly to chapter 17, just a few verses into this. Verse 1. He said to His disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would be would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. Stumbling blocks. Jesus says it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. Stumbling blocks, the Greek word is scandalon. It's where we get our word scandal. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. What's interesting is that word scandalon comes from the word in the Greek that literally means a bent stick that springs a trap. A bent stick. That's a scandal. That's, that's an offense. Something that's set up to trap you. To ensnare you. And Jesus knows the heart of man. And so what He's expressing here, He's already expressed before. He warns there's going to be tares in the wheat. There's going to be birds in the branches, leaven in the loaf, bent sticks among believers. There are going to be those who are stumbling blocks among believers in churches. Be on your guard. And by the way, don't be a bent stick yourself. Wouldn't that be a great phrase to start using? Ah, he's just a bent stick. A bent stick, one who causes dissension, one who causes scandal, one who causes division and factions. Don't be that way. John said in 1 John 2.10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. In other words, you love your brother enough to go out of your way to help him in his walk. You're not trying to cause problems. You're not trying to see if you can trip someone. You're not bending the stick and setting it as a trap. You'll love too much. And so you're open and you're honest and we care for one another. Paul admonished the church on this issue often. Romans 16:17. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. And Paul says, turn away from them. There is one thing for all of the sin of the world, 
for all of the pigsties that people will come out of, that we have come out of to find grace with Jesus Christ, there is one thing intolerable in the church, and that is someone who stirs up strife. And Paul says, in the case of someone who creates factions and dissension, have nothing to do with them. Unacceptable. Because the word is unity in the body. 1 Corinthians 11.19 There must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. There are going to be factions. Don't be surprised. I believe it's Jesus' way, it's Paul's way of saying, look, when you start, when you're saved, when you start getting involved in church, you're going to run into idiots. Don't put your faith in man. The factions are going to be there. People are going to do stupid things. Your pastor is going to do stupid things. Well, how could he? Because he's an idiot. (laughs) Because he's a human being with a human heart. Don't expect it out of each other. Love each other. Do everything you can to keep each other from stumbling. And keep your eyes on Jesus. And let Him deal with things. More on that in just a second. But Paul also said, Titus 3.10, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Factious. Someone who's dividing. Someone who's behind the scenes whispering. Someone who's undermining. Someone who's trying to diminish or detour the the unity of the body. Verse 3, continuing on. So he says, be on your guard. And then he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. (laughs) How do you know whether to reject someone or to forgive them? Jesus, you just told me to be on my guard against bent sticks and now you're telling me to forgive someone every time they turn around and say they repent. And that's the key. If they repent. doesn't matter what they do. Doesn't matter how bad it is, if they repent, you forgive. That's our job. That's, that's our role. The factious man is going to be by nature somewhat unrepentant. A bent stick who justifies his own behavior. Well, that's not really what I meant by that. You know? He's the guy, she's the gal who does not bear fruit in keeping with repentance, but seeks to divide. And that person is not to be accepted. On the other hand, even if I'm offended, when a brother, when a sister repents, my responsibility is to forgive. Seven times a day. Have you had someone offend you seven times in one day and at the end of the day went to bed knowing you'd forgiven them? I'm sorry, but about after the third time, I'm going, dude, I've had enough. No. Ephesians 4.2 says, With all humility... And gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, but what if a person just keeps offending me? What if this one loser keeps causing the problems over and over and over and he keeps repenting? I'm so sorry I did that. Stop doing it! And he does it again. Oh, I'm sorry I did that. What do you do? And I love this because the apostles get it. Verse 5, they say to the Lord, Increase our faith! What do you mean they get it? They understand a very powerful truth. It takes faith to forgive like that. Nobody can forgive someone seven times a day 
who keeps coming back, asking for forgiveness again. Here we go again. Right back on the merry-go-round. Nobody can do that without faith. It takes faith to forgive. It doesn't take much. Just a little. What are you talking about? Verse 6. The Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now i got to point something out. This is not a mulberry tree. It's a bad translation. If your Bible says mulberry tree, it's wrong. If your Bible says sycamore tree, it's wrong. <coughs> the tree here is very literally, and it's literal in the Greek, because later we're going to run into Zacchaeus. Remember little Zacchaeus climbs the sycamore tree to see Jesus? That is a sycamore tree, and the word used for that in the Greek is a different word than this one. This is not a mulberry tree, it's not a sycamore tree, it is a sycamine tree which is an actual tree indigenous to the Middle East, a sycamine tree. It is of the fig family. It's interesting because figs don't grow in clusters on the branches. The figs actually grow on the trunk of the tree. You peel the figs off of the trunk. If you want to, it grows 30 feet high. To get those figs off the trunk, if you peel one off and bit into it, you would discover the figs of the sycamine tree are incredibly bitter. They're not really something you want to eat. You could, I guess, for survival purposes, if there was nothing else to eat, but they're very, very bitter. And the sycamine tree is incredibly hard to uproot. It's got one of the deepest root structures in all of the Middle East. It grows 30 feet high and its roots go so far down that it is very hard to kill these trees, to uproot them, to pull them out. So why does Jesus specifically say, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you would say to the sycamine tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you? Think about it. Unforgiveness, even deep-rooted bitterness, can be uprooted by a little forgiveness. By a forgiveness given in faith. It's a perfect example. Jesus says, you know, someone offends you and they hurt you and they've done it over and over in your life. Maybe it was a parent or a sibling or a friend who betrayed you. And you know how that feels. Those roots of bitterness go really deep. And you, like the apostles, look at Jesus and go, increase my faith because you're telling me to forgive that person and I don't have faith for that the root of bitterness is too deep this bitter tree is stuck in good and Jesus goes you know all you need is a little bit of faith and if you are having trouble forgiving someone of their sins against you of their abuses against you of the bitterness that they have poured into your life if you're having trouble forgiving all you need is to pray that God increase your faith All you need is a little mustard seed. What kind of faith? Faith that the Lord will deal with any residual roots. Faith that, that the Lord, He is going to make everything right. Faith that you don't have to make everything right. You don't have to correct the whole entire relationship. I have a family member. (laughs) Uh... Who, had a, who has a sister, and this is a kind of extended family. But the sister was in counseling for, I think, about 90 years. Um, about that. But just ongoing psychotherapy. 
And by the way, if you're in psychotherapy right now, get out. You know, they did a 40-year longitudinal study on psychotherapy to see you know, the effects of that in someone's life versus friendship, and friendship trumped it. <laughs> Just get a friend, man. You're paying 150 bucks an hour to go sit on a couch and go, oh, it's a tree, it's a dog, it's a cow. I don't know. So, anyway, this, I'll never forget this phrase. The phrase was this, this sister of this family member of mine, this sister came up, and wanted to deal with all of the issues of their childhood one by one by one. Wanted to get, and she said, I want to get into the cake. Got to get into the cake. You're in the icing. You're superficial. We got to get down into the cake. And she says, you know what? Why don't you let God get into the cake? Why don't you let God deal with the deep roots? Let, let Him dig into that stuff. You just have faith He's going to do it. If you can believe and trust that God is strong enough to heal that stuff, then for your part, guess what you do? Forgive. You forgive because you know your father is going to deal with that parent. You know your God is going to handle that situation with that friend or that loved one or that sibling that hurt you so badly. God's going to take care of that. I can't. I don't have to. I forgive. And suddenly, that sycamine tree is ripped out of the ground and thrown into the sea. You want to know the key to increasing faith like this? It's very simple. Last concept of the night. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, they they ask Him for an increase of faith. He says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink. Now please understand Jesus' parable, what he's saying here. He's talking about a very common thing when people had indentured servants, when they had slaves, and the slave had the responsibility to serve the the master. And Jesus is talking in those terms, and he's saying, suppose you have a slave. Do you have them come in and, and they eat first while you wait? Or... Do they serve you and then they get to eat? That's kind of the deal. He's not condoning it, by the way. He's not saying slavery is a good thing. He's just saying this is what it is culturally. I'm using it as an example. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. You want to increase your faith? You want a faith that keeps increasing? Very simple. Develop an attitude of servitude. And your faith will leap. Develop an attitude of servitude. This is the attitude. I am an unworthy slave. I have no rights. I am just doing what He commands me to do. An attitude of servitude. Now you might say, well, I don't very much like being a slave. Let me just read you something. You can stay where you are. This is out of Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Paul says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that one whom you obey? Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became 
slaves of righteousness. I go from one form of slavery to another. I go from the slavery of sin to the slavery, Paul's words, Holy Spirit inspired, the slavery of righteousness. Oh, but it's a beautiful slavery. It is a free slavery. It is a service of a God and Master who loves me, who called me, who saved me. But I'm a slave. I'm a slave of righteousness. I am now destined and bent on doing what God wants me to do. That's, that's my life now. That's the new life. I want to do what He wants now. What He wants me to do is wonderful. It's fantastic. But I'm a slave of righteousness. I don't want to be a slave. Well, you're going to be a slave. You're either going to be a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. It's your choice. Choose one or the other. See how it works for you. But you're going to be a slave of something, whatever your heart obeys. Jesus says, develop an attitude of servitude. Know your place. Now get this. Know your place in the kingdom. Now you might say, okay, but how can that attitude, how can this subservient attitude increase faith? How does that work? Verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, and note that again, he is still on the way to Jerusalem. He is heading to Jerusalem. He was passing between Samaria and Galilee as he entered a village. Ten leprous men stood at a distance and they met him. They raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Cool. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered and said, Were not ten cleansed? <laughs> I went, did I miss? I thought I, I thought I healed ten. Did is there? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And note what happens. And he said to him, "Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well." What just happened here? The Samaritan had an attitude of servitude. The Samaritan immediately knew his place. He goes back to Jesus. He falls on his face in thanksgiving. And he gets, I believe, a bonus healing. The other nine were physically healed. This one is spiritually healed. This one, the the other nine, they got clean bodies. Oh, to be sure, this one got a clean heart. Go, your faith, your faith has now saved you. It has healed you. Okay, but still, how does, that in, how does that increase faith? Verse 20. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to what the kingdom of God or when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The phrase in the Greek is suintos and it means the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The NIV translates it, the kingdom of God is within you, and people have almost taken that to a new age level to say, oh yeah, I've got the kingdom growing inside of me. And that's not what he said. Jesus says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, you're looking at Him. 
They're all gathered around and in their midst the kingdom stood right there in the person of the King. Of Jesus Himself. The kingdom is wherever the King is present. And Jesus is present there with them. The kingdom of God is here. And here's the point. As a servant, as a slave, I know my place relative to the King. I know where I am in relationship to the King. And that increases faith. That's where the attitude of servitude increases faith. Because I serve because He is King. He's the one with the power. He's the one with the glory. He's the one who is capable of handling all... He's the healer, not me. And so I have an attitude of servitude, knowing my place before Jesus, and that increases my faith to, to forgive because, hey, He's already forgiven. And I can forgive those who have hurt me because He will take care of it. He's the King, not me. The attitude of servitude, by the way, is the very heart of the prodigal son. What did he say? Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. All he wanted was to go serve in his father's house. And when he got home, how did the father respond? Party time. And Jesus, when we get home, I can't even imagine the celebration that is waiting. But until then, Lord, may we like the prodigal recognize that we have come from a place of sin. That while we repent and we come to You, we come, Lord, as those who just want to serve. Who just want to be in Your kingdom and about Your business, keeping Your commands, knowing our place. And so humbly we praise Your name and we lift up Jesus Christ as King over all. In Jesus' name, Amen.